In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you work out regularly, you probably take some sort of supplement, be it whey protein or creatine or some sort of pre-workout, but do the supplements you're taking actually work? My guest today on the show has spent his career studying the effects of what we put into our body and is the director of the online encyclopedia of supplements and nutrition called examine.com. His name is Kamal Patel. He's a researcher with an MPH and MBA from John Hopkins University and is working on his PhD in nutrition. Today on the show, Kamal and I discuss why there's so much confusion when it comes to supplements and nutrition. For example, he explains why one study can say cholesterol is bad for you while another one says it's vital for health. And then Kamal breaks down how to read scientific studies uh, on nutrition so you can make informed decisions about your diet instead of relying on clickbait headlines published by pseudo-journalists. We then get into which supplements actually work and which ones are a waste of money. And then Kamal also shares his insights on the growing field of nootropics and if there really are supplements that will make you smarter. If you've been overwhelmed by the science of supplements and nutrition, this podcast will give you several tools to help you make better, more informed choices. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash examine. All right, Kamal Patel, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. So you uh, started a website and own a website called examine.com that basically just simplifies and really digs into the research out there about nutrition, supplements, et cetera, because it's super confusing uh, to analyze these studies, figure out what they actually are saying so you can make good decisions. So I, I, it's one of my go-to sources whenever I'm thinking about it. Should I try this supplement? Does it actually do anything or am I just peeing it away uh, whenever I take it? Uh, but before we get into talk, talking about examine.com, can you tell us a little bit about your background um, and why you decided to start examine.com? So I first became interested in nutrition sometime in uh, the late 90s. So it was when I was in college and I was really skinny and basically I wanted to get bigger. Um, and then the the first person I ever talked to about weightlifting happened to be a powerlifter who lived in the dorm in the room next to me. And he told me straight away that the most important thing was to learn how to cook um, and to learn some basics about nutrition and not worry so much about micromanaging what you do at the gym. Um, so I, I went straight to the literature right away, uh, which I was lucky to do rather than going through what people usually go through. Um, and then I, I gained some weight and I became sort of a wannabe powerlifter myself. And then a few years later, um, I guess 10, 15 years later, um, I got more interested in the health aspects because, uh, you know, like a lot of people, I had some injuries and then had a few surgeries and I stopped lifting weights so much. Uh, and then when you get older, your friends and family have health issues and you become more interested in 
what it takes to feel better rather than only looking better. So I started working at a, a research institution that was doing the systematic review for the 2010 vitamin D guidelines for the Institute of Medicine. Um, so I, I ended up reading a bunch of vitamin D studies and getting familiar with how governments make guidelines for different nutrients. Um, and then right around that point, examine.com had been founded two or three years prior, um, sort of as an offshoot from a discussion on Reddit when a couple of people were talking about how there wasn't a resource that uh, was independent and did sort of systematic reviews for the public. So they needed somebody to run the website and I was around and I had an evidence-based medicine background. So I came on um, and now a few years later, I think we're most likely the biggest source of nutrition research on the web. Yeah, you are. I mean, pretty much anything and everything you can think of when it comes to nutrition, you can search for it and you'll find this is just wonderful breakdown of the research that's out there. But let's talk about, you know, there is so much confusion out there about studies related to nutrition and health, right? I mean, if you're listening to the popular media, watching TV or reading the blogs, there's, it always seems like there's, you know, a study coming out saying that X is bad for you. And then a year later it's saying, well, X is actually good for you. Um, what's going on there? Why does it seem there's so much, there's so much contradictory information out there uh, about nutrition? So this is a really good question, and it could probably be a podcast by itself. What a lot of people don't understand is that when you're doing research and then when you're synthesizing that research into reviews and meta-analyses, um, it's a lot different than what you see in the media. And it's not because the media is biased, although they sometimes are, um, and it's not because journalists are ignorant, uh, because often nowadays either they, they learn stuff themselves or they have some science background. Um, rather... The reason why studies seem to conflict is that the scientific method, uh, you know, that's been carried on since Newton and, and before him um, involves making observations, doing tests, and then reiterating the process until you get closer to the truth. And nutrition is a lot more complex than a lot of topics because there's a lot of things we don't understand about the body. Um, we don't understand quite how the brain interacts with the gut. We don't understand quite what makes some people gain muscle and some people don't. So there's just so many things that are unknown. And then when you do a, a clinical trial, when you do a controlled study, you're purposely holding as many factors controlled as you can so that you can study one particular thing, which is like, you know, vitamin D in people with diabetes. So when you control for all those things, it's good because then you can focus in on one factor and see if it works or not. But it's also bad because it doesn't apply as well to real life. So then when you do another study in a slightly different set of people, and then you use a slightly different intervention, um, and then you introduce some other methodological differences um, and statistical differences as well, then you end up with different results. Um, and then that's not to mention there's also ways that the research process is kind of flawed uh, because most studies that are published end up being studies that show some difference between placebo and the intervention. So if you, if you do a study and there's no difference, you're less likely to get it published in a good journal. So when you take into account all these things, then things end up looking really confusing because let's say saturated fat, for example, um, saturated fat was demonized for decades. Um, and then, slowly it's been not as demonized, but then kind of it's tipping the other way. So some people end up eating, um, you know, sticks of butter or basically only meat because they want to only get saturated fat. So that's not so great because uh, 
everything in moderation is also really not good advice. You know, take that in moderation as well. But when you when you don't look at both sides of an issue, so the benefits and drawbacks of saturated fat, then you end up missing out that there are some safe and optimal doses for different nutrients. So there's always going to be studies that say that something's good for you, followed up by studies that say it's bad for you. So you really have to go look at the actual paper to see and what aspect it's good for you or bad for you, and in which sorts of people it's good and bad. Right. And I feel like also, too, uh, in the popular media, not necessarily like science writers, journalists, but, uh, you know, bloggers, etc., they'll just look at the conclusion of a study and say, well, yeah, this, it says it has, uh, has beneficial aspects. But again, they don't take into account other factors. And so they'll see that conclusion that just like write this, you know, this broad, making this broad sweeping claim that, oh yeah, you need to do this because this one study said that it can have beneficial factors, but it, they didn't take into account the control or how narrow refined um, the experiment was. Yeah, I can't blame people for doing that. So before I went to school for nutrition, I used to do the same thing. I would find an article on PubMed and say, oh, you know, this isn't true because, uh, you know, a study showed that if you take BCAAs, then it does this. But then there's two levels of misinformation. One is that when you read the abstract, there is usually not a standard of sort of scientific integrity for that, for the abstract. So they don't have to say what the major limitations of the study are in the abstract. They only get into that in the discussion. And oftentimes they even miss some of the, the ones that they don't want to say. And then the second thing is there's all kinds of pitfalls with the abstract. So um, let's say you compare vitamin D to placebo for muscle gain. And then um, in the abstract, you read that vitamin D increased muscle gain as verified by a DEXA scan after eight weeks. And then you show somebody the study and you say, hey, vitamin D helps muscle gain. So that all is technically true. But if you read the actual paper, sometimes what happens is vitamin D increased muscle gain by like 2%. And then placebo increased muscle gain by 1%. So vitamin D significantly increased muscle gain from the eight-week period back to baseline compared to itself. But compared to placebo, it didn't significantly increase muscle gain because they both did. So the whole purpose of a placebo-controlled trial is to compare against placebo. But even, you know, 60 years after evidence-based medicine really started getting going, there are still studies with abstracts that only talk about the intervention, not comparison to placebo. So that's the kind of thing that we look at. We try to make sure that people aren't duped by abstracts and by, you know, articles about the abstracts. Right. I feel like, yeah, the abstract can really uh, lead you astray because a lot of times that's all you have access to if you're just a layman, right? You can just see the abstract. You can't actually access the research or unless you have to pay for it. So you read the abstract and you're like, oh, that says that I'm going to go with that. Yep. Yeah. Um, so let's say if someone wants to take a look at these studies and actually examine them themselves, um, is, is there a, a sort of a mindset or sort of things that people should look for as they're re reading the study so they're not led astray by the abstract or a, a conclusion um, in the study? Yeah, uh, we have a short kind of study guide about studies on our website, but just to paraphrase some of the most important parts, um, most people who will look at a study kind of understand what significant means. Um, and it, it basically means that 
you know, if you find that, again, let's say vitamin D, if you find that there's a significant difference between vitamin C, D and placebo, then um, that means that there's a low chance that the results of the study were uh, random, just due to chance. And there's a higher probability that that difference between vitamin D and placebo is real. Now, the thing is, that's usually about as deep as people get. But what's really important to know is that the significance is not the most important part of the study. So um, what's really important is how sure are we of the results? And that's not just to do with significance, it's to do with a bunch of other parts of the study. So there's all these um, study quality metrics uh, that uh, like the Cochrane Collaboration, which which, uh, synthesizes studies and some other organizations use. So when I used to work at that research center, some of the important things we would look at are not just what the result is, so vitamin D um, increased muscle gain by 2%, but rather what the confidence interval is. How confident are we and what are the upper and lower bounds of how confident we are? So a confidence interval for that might say, this study showed that vitamin D increased muscle gain by 2%, but the upper and lower bounds is it could go up to 4% or it could go down to minus 1%. So you might think, you know, if the lower bound is minus 1%, which means vitamin D could actually decrease muscle gain by 1%, what does that actually mean? What it usually means is that the study was in a small enough sample of people that were not very confident of the results. So if you did that study in 5,000 people rather than 30, then you would end up with a much narrower confidence interval and you'd basically much be much more confident in your result. Um, and then other than the significance and the numbers themselves, there's a bunch of other things to look at. So uh, when you do a study, then uh, the you know so, so-called gold standard is a randomized controlled trial. But uh, nowadays people think in terms of uh, meta-analyses and systematic reviews of studies. So there was a, a review about two years ago on vitamin D that was called an umbrella review, which is basically a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. So there's been so many studies on vitamin D now, and then meta-analyses looking at one specific topic. So, you know, like the the 20 different studies on vitamin D and blood pressure all get pulled together and looked at quantitatively, and that's one meta-analysis. Meta-analysis. So now there's so many of those meta-analyses that somebody went and looked at all the meta-analyses, and they said, um, this shows that there's actually not as much certainty about vitamin D benefits as we might have thought, so we might want to be more careful about recommending it. So there's all kinds of pros and cons to that. Um, you know, in my opinion, when you get so far away from the data itself, uh, doing a review of reviews, then you lose some of the, you know, forest for the trees. Vitamin D is a hormone precursor and it makes sense. The mechanistics make sense for a bunch of different outcomes. So I think it doesn't really matter sometimes what all the studies say, but rather what the best studies say combined with whether it makes sense or not. So there's just a, there's a lot of things to look at for the average person looking at a study. Um, and really, you just have to read up and practice looking at studies and find out more and more. Yeah. And one, one thing that I've learned over the years doing, you know, writing content for the art of manliness, you know, based on scientific research is also look at, you know, what's the group that they're studying, right? For like, for example, testosterone, like increasing your testosterone. Well, one study could say, well, if you do this one intervention, uh, rate, you know, it showed an increase in testosterone levels, but then you have to look at, well, who are they studying? And oftentimes these like, you know, great increase in testosterone levels were done on people who had 
just severely low testosterone. Older men, men with diabetes, men who had some kind of health problem. It didn't cover like just relatively healthy guys who wanted to increase their testosterone. Like, so you could do those interventions. You probably wouldn't see much of an increase. So I, that's one thing I've had to like catch myself as I was looking. It's like, who's actually being studied on this? Because the, the, this control group or the study group, um, can have fantastic results, but if we're a regular, healthy, relatively healthy guy, you're probably not going to see the same thing. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because uh, I just answered a question on our Facebook page. Somebody asked about this article we posted. So the the study we posted showed that if you doubled your protein intake during a heavy calorie deficit, then you could lose a lot of fat and gain some muscle at the same time. So. Um, historically, people have thought you have to go on bulking and cutting cycles because you can't really do both at the same time. If you're in a calorie deficit, you're not going to gain muscle. If you're in excess of calories, you're not going to lose fat. And then people started um, periodizing their carbs around workouts or you know other types of um, almost intermittent fasting type things. And then they found that you maybe sort of could. So in this study, it showed a pretty significant uh, lean mass increase after cutting calories by 40%. So we made sure to say that this was an overweight man. Um, and then somebody asked, you know, why do they keep doing these studies? So there's all these studies done on overweight men showing that, you know, you can do things such as gain muscle on a heavy calorie deficit. Um, can you explain why that even happens? Why are there all these studies out there? And people lose sight of the fact that studies aren't done for healthy, lean, athletic people. You know, the, the problem in America or the problem in Australia or basically any country nowadays um, that's losing the economy billions of dollars and, you know, causing a lot of distress is not that people with four packs are not able to get six packs. It's that people who are overweight and obese are getting prediabetes and diabetes, you know, a lot earlier than usual. People basically have, you know, whacked hormones a lot earlier than usual. So the problem is with sick people and with two thirds of people being overweight or obese, you're going to end up with NIH funding on those people. So that doesn't mean that you can't rely on those studies for people who aren't sick or overweight or obese. It just means that um, there's a decent chance that it might not apply the further you're away from that. So if you're a competition ready bodybuilder, you're not going to go in a 40% calorie deficit and gain muscle because your body, you know, does, would not survive if you kept doing that. Um, but for somebody who's a little bit overweight or even normal weight, you, you could gain some muscle on a 40% calorie deficit, but you really do have to look at the population in hand and you have to look at who the study's funded by. So, you know, there's been all kinds of studies we've looked at where, like, for example, uh, when you look at fructose research, um, fruit sugar, and also uh, sugar and high fructose corn syrup. And you look at um, beverages that contain sugar in, in general, when you look at randomized trials on them, most likely if a trial is funded by the sugar industry, then that trial will show no difference between you know water and uh, sugared beverages. But if you look at NIH funded research, it's more likely to show that um, beverages with sugar are harmful. So that applies to a bunch of things, including supplement companies, um, and the dairy industry and stuff like that. So it's not that dairy is bad. It's not that meat's bad. It's not that sugar's bad. It's just that you can't be fully sure that the research you're reading hasn't been influenced in some way. And uh, how should people approach studies done on animals? Because uh, a lot of the research on supplements um, 
or in regards to testosterone, like it's done on mice. Like that's the control. That's the experiment group. Um, should you take that with a grain of salt or is there anything you can actually glean from animal studies and transfer that to human health? So yeah, it should be a grain of salt or more, um, but not totally disregarded. So the reason why animals are used is because you can control factors in animals a lot better. Um, animals have shorter lifespans and it's cheaper and easier than using humans. So even a study of, let's say, 30 people, if you control their diet, meaning you as the primary investigator provides their food for them, then you have to make sure to follow up to make sure they're eating it. Um, and then they have to have site visits. So over the course of months, that adds up to a ton of money. And usually those kind of studies cost at least one or two million dollars. If you do a study in mice or rats, it's a lot cheaper. And we do share a lot of physiology with rodents and with other animals, but there's a lot of downside. So even for very basic things, rodents and other mammals are different than humans. So as one example, um, vitamin C is one of the most studied um, supplements because it's one of our major exogenous antioxidants. Um, the antioxidants we make in our body are things like glutathione. So vitamin C is important if you don't um, get enough of it, which can sometimes happen on a low-carb diet if you don't pay attention to what you're eating or supplementing, um, then you could sort of develop low-level symptoms of not healing well and you know not performing well at the gym and a bunch of other things. So humans cannot synthesize vitamin C, but almost every other animal can. So in that very basic way, we're different than rodents and other animals. So at some point about 2 million years ago, we developed a genetic mutation so that we wouldn't produce vitamin C. And we don't know exactly why. It could have provided a survival advantage in some way. Um, plus, maybe we were eating more fruit around then or something. But for various reasons, we don't produce vitamin C and every other animal does. Vitamin C is a major antioxidant uh, that's water-soluble. So that's just one easily identifiable difference between us and rodents. And then there's all kinds of other differences. So metabolism uh, rates are different and, and ways to deal with stress are different. Uh, the organs are the same, but often hormonal communication is different. So yeah, you have to be very wary of when there was a rodent study done on vitamin or on uh, testosterone, applying that to humans. Um, even for example, like uh, phytoestrogen studies. So we don't know exactly which dietary phytoestrogens are important and not important for humans to watch out for. So uh, that applies to men or women. Uh, so for men trying to increase their testosterone or to prevent a decline, um, we don't know how much soy it takes. We don't know how much of other plants it takes uh, to sort of disrupt our testosterone production because of constituents in them, because Animal studies often don't translate to humans. And actually, the best way we know that is not through supplements, but through cancer drugs. So um, something like 70% of cancer drugs that work in rodents end up not working in humans for a wide variety of reasons. Um, and then on the flip side, a lot of drugs that, show, that don't show side effects in rodents end up showing side effects in humans. So you can never be sure. It's mostly like... Um, observational cohort epidemiological evidence and humans can be used to generate hypotheses. Um, in my view, rodent evidence should be used to generate hypotheses, not to directly apply it to somebody's life. So they could read the studies on their own with some of those guidelines. And again, we'll put a link to the site where you have that um, study guide um, where people can follow so they can do their own research, but they could also go to examine.com where this stuff has been synthesized uh, for you. Um, so in your work with examine.com, what do you think are the 
what are the biggest nutrition myths or supplement myths that you see being pushed over and over again? You get, you keep getting questions asked about it. Um, are there any like that? Yeah. So most of the most important myths are blank is bad. So carbs are bad. Fat is bad. Meat is bad. You know, I'd say those are the three main ones. So addressing them in order, um, carbs are obviously not bad. Um, it's almost painfully obvious because some of the observationally, some of the longest lived cultures in the world eat a lot of carbs. Um, our bodies do not run badly on carbs. Uh, there's no inherent reason why you would develop uh, blood sugar dysregulation and diabetes from eating carbs. Uh, diabetes can be a conglomeration of different things, such as eating unhealthy diet that includes a lot of carbs, but um, carbs are not evil. And similarly, fat is not evil. So, you know, there's pros and cons of each. Um, you know, the, the body develops adipose tissue in order to efficiently store extra calories. If we couldn't efficiently store extra calories, then we would die. You know, there would be too much triglyceride in our blood. Uh, we, our pancreas would end up getting overwhelmed. So it's good to be able to dispose of calories in adipose tissue. If you don't, you end up with things like diabetes and dysregulation of hormones. So the excess calories can be from fat or from sugar. So um, fat is very easy to overconsume, as is processed sugar, but things that contain carbs that are not processed are not easy to overeat. So you can't actually eat that much fruit um, if it's not processed, for example. So, you know, if you try to eat like 10 bananas or 15 apples or something, you have to really slog your way through that. And those contain all carbs, no fat. And it's really the water and the fiber that provides some satiety. Um, similarly, Fat is not bad, which I'm sure 99.9% .9 of your podcast audience knows, but fat is also not inherently good. Um, you know, uh, isolated fat does usually not contain many nutrients. Um, it's easy to overconsume fat. So uh, I worked for a bit at an obesity clinic in Boston. And, you know, when working with patients, then it, this isn't like random internet reading and seeing what works for you. When working with large swaths of patients, there's a lot of people who are overweight or obese who... Um, have certain foods that they, they can't get enough of and they like binge eat at night. So peanut butter, chocolate, um, things with a lot of fat contain a lot of calories, you know, as you know, in a small amount of matter. So, um, and then there's other things like uh, it's possible that you, if you eat a junk food diet that also contains a lot of fat, then there could be some issues for your gut. Um, and that doesn't mean that that sugar is cleared of that either, but there's just pros and cons of both. And then, you know, meat is bad or meat is good is also not true. So uh, there are some reasons why meat could potentially not be optimal, certain types of meat in large doses, uh, mostly processed meats. Um, and that could be because of uh, carcinogens in uh, meat that's either cooked very well, um, almost burnt, uh, or meat that's been uh, preserved or even eating a ton of meat that's not been preserved uh, for certain people could have issues like iron overload in people who have um, some susceptibility to that. Um, or I've often wondered, like for myself, uh, there's a lot of things we don't know about the gut. Um, and there's certain uh, people who might have genetic differences in the way that they handle iron or ha handle other things from meat. Um, and there are bacteria that, for example, could consume protein and amino acids. So there's just a lot of things we don't know. So I think having a diet that's almost only meat and no carbohydrate 
Um, it could potentially have long-term effects for certain people. So I think a safe diet is just a, a normal diet. You know, it's anything that has uh, a lot of food that looks like plants or animals, you know, whether it's beef or chicken or fish um, or, you know, normal lettuce or kale or quinoa or whatever, just as long as you're eating mostly normal food, then it usually works out. So anytime you completely eliminate something and you force your friends and family to do so as well, then I'd say that's the biggest and most harmful myth. So you're not a fan of like the paleo diet or stuff like that? Uh, funny enough, I kind of uh, came through the paleo sphere. Um, I helped organize one of the first two or three paleo conferences, but what always got to me is that there's a lot of people who speak at those um, who are well-versed and who are professors in different areas. Um, and, and, you know, it's a very interesting topic to see how connected our diet is or should be to what people ate either 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, or a hundred years ago. But I think uh, when people first get into the paleo diet, then they look at it in terms of specific rules, you know, I have to eat uh, meats, fruits, and vegetables, and I can't eat other stuff. I can't eat any added sugar. Um, you know, I can't eat uh, legumes. I can't eat potatoes or white rice. There aren't a lot of good reasons why white rice would be harmful if you eat it in normal amounts. Um, you know, people in Japan eat a moderate to low amount of white rice almost every day or in certain Asian countries. And th those are some of the longest living cultures in the world. White potatoes, um, when paleo sort of first got popular, got demonized uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that they contain a decent amount of carbohydrate, which is actually um, somewhat of mis misconstruing the nutrition facts. Because if you eat a whole potato, it's got something like 25 grams of carbohydrate. But if you eat a whole potato, you're going to get fairly full because it has a lot of water and fiber as well. Um, and for some reason, some people are okay with sweet potatoes, but not white potatoes, even though they both contain a similar amount of micronutrients. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why those black and white rules, you know, don't really pertain, but there are reasons why a paleo template works well for a lot of people. Uh, but I just think it's good to always take a step back and look in terms of, you know, why am I implementing these rules instead of just what makes me feel good or feel bad? So someone's listening to say they want to lose weight. Um, What's the key to that? Is there like a macro makeup they should shoot for, a calorie count they should shoot for? Um, any any insight there? Yeah, so um, I always advise two different paths. So uh, there was a time when I worked the, with a physician here in San Francisco who did a quantified self-tracking program with his patients. Um, half the patients were people with uh, metabolic disorders or could develop them, and half the patients were former addicts, um, either drug addicts, um, smokers or people who are addicted to food. So what I would say is um, after a session or two, you would try to get to know the person and see, you know, what their MO was, how they acted. If it was somebody who did really well with, you know, when they find out something, they have to learn everything about it. And they, uh, when they work, then they work very specifically with specific habits. Like, you know, they wouldn't do good with working at home unless they used, uh, you know, time boxing, like a Pomodoro type thing where you work in 25 minutes and take five minutes off. Uh, then for those types of people, fitting their diet into a calorie count is often a really great idea. So you give them 2000 or 2500 or 1800 calories a day, and you say, eat whatever you want, but 
make sure to not fill it with junk food, you know, have a mix of things, then they often lose weight reliably and quickly. And then on the flip side, there's people who, you know, like would never do that kind of thing. They work when they want to work. They work while they watch TV. Um, you know, they work all weekend and then do a Netflix binge Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So for those people, I'd say, uh, look at general principles. So what are the types of things that you eat too much of that, you know, aren't healthy? So it could be obvious things like chips or cookies or something, or it could be something more sort of insidious, you know, like I said before, peanut butter, um, or, you know, some people just, uh, eat a bunch of things that are healthy, but they eat too much of them. So, uh, like pho noodles, uh, are, are, can be very healthy, but some people just eat a ton of that. Um, and then they get overweight over time just by eating a little too many calories every week, um, over the course of years. And so for those people, I'd say write down two or three things that seem to be important and then tick that off every day. So like today I did not binge on blank or today I only ate from 12 p.m. to or, uh, yeah, 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. And I didn't late night binge. And if you do that for a week and then you get used to it and you keep doing that, then you'll lose weight. And there's actually a third group, which I'd say is in the minority and be careful with this. Um, and I kind of fall into this. So people who do well with extremes. So, um, you know, I like reading everything about stuff that I want to know about, uh, kind of like the second group. And that's sort of why I, I'm at examine. But when I did my first ketogenic diet, I think it was uh, 1997. I was just learning about nutrition. Um, I read Lyle McDonald's ketogenic diet. And I was like, you know, I want to use this in my cutting cycle. And uh, I did it and I did this successfully. And then I was like, oh, you know, next time I want to do an even more extreme version. So I did a protein sparing modified fast. So I ate something like, you know, 700 calories a day. Uh, so it was a, a slightly modified protein sparing modified fast. And, and I cut really well and I got the leanest I've ever been. But I would not recommend that to 99.999% of people because the major thing you want to do is make something sustainable. For myself, I knew that I could sustainably experiment with diets. But for most people, the sustainability is not with experimentation. It's with being healthy and losing weight, making sure you don't, you know, collapse on the street because you, you didn't eat enough of a certain nutrient. So I'd say find where you are amongst those groups um, and then go from there, either calorie counting or focusing on, you know, two or three major rules. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Yeah, I like how you, you take into account behavior. That's the thing I think people overlook 
oftentimes, and they try to work against their natural inclinations. And that's where they end up with that frustration where a diet fails. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, we talked about losing weight. What if you want to gain weight? Um, any, any insight there from your research? Yeah. So there's ways to tweak weight gain, uh, but the principles have almost always been the same. So, uh, what I find interesting is almost any country that you look at the sort of old time strongmen. So whether it was, you know, Western Europe and the strong, strong man slash wrestler type person or India, um, the people who would do feats of strength, um, and then it's sort of the same in East Asia and other parts of the world. People would eat similar diets. Um, no matter what the amount of meat was, people would often eat large amounts of uh, whole foods, basically. So like in India, there was somebody who would eat a lot of the, um, I don't, in, our, in our weird Indian language, I don't know how you would say it in, in English or Hindi, but uh, the, the sort of... Uh, wraps made out of either graham flour or wheat flour or whatever flour um, and potatoes and milk um, and uh, lentils and just eat a lot of that and eat and eat consistently. So uh, in, in Western Europe, oftentimes people would eat a lot of potatoes and meat and milk. And then uh, in East Asia, there would be a lot of rice and meat or wheat and meat, depending on what region of East Asia you're in. So it was always mostly the same, getting in a lot of calories, getting a minimum of protein and eating a lot consistently. And then if the person wanted to concentrate on physique, they would do a cutting cycle. So nowadays, since we know a bit more, basically what we've done is um, improve the cutting cycle a bit and then less so improve the bulking part. So, uh, you know, if, if you already know a lot about nutrition, then you probably know that one of, one of the conceptually easiest ways to do the bulking is sort of the Martin Burkan intermittent fasting type thing. And that's because if you're bulking freestyle, then I remember when I was trying to get ready for my first um, physique competition, which never happened. So I, I bulked without thinking twice about things and just ate a lot of everything. Um, and I, I ended up getting a DEXA scan uh, three times that year. And I got to my highest body fat percentage ever. So I was strangely proud of that. Uh, and then I ended up cutting really hard, but the harder you bulk, the harder you have to cut. And sometimes you bulk so hard that you'll never get back down to six pack. So, um, what we know now is that eating at all times of the day is probably not a great thing, not just for bulking, but for health in general. So, um, this is where sort of the, the paleo template helps because, if you think in terms of food availability, um, unless you were rich a few hundred years ago, you would not eat all the time. So uh, I remember when I, I first got on this paleo forum a few years ago, paleo hacks, which I think is mostly defunct now, then a lot of paleo people got mad at me because I would ask questions like, you know, if you eat three eggs every morning, the rest of your life, is that paleo? Because, uh, you know, would paleo man have found three eggs every morning, every day for his whole life. You know, if he found a stash of eggs, would he share that with his family or with his village? Uh, Would there be times when because of animal migration, there wouldn't be a lot of eggs? So, you know, that wasn't a comment about uh, micronutrients or health. It was rather, is this natural? So I don't think it's unhealthy to eat three eggs every day, 
But I do think that if you're thinking in terms of, you know, a template, a, a natural template, it's not really a natural thing to even eat the same thing every day usually because people would often eat different things uh, because you would have to try to actively find food. And when you actively try to find food, you have to experiment with different foods and look in different places. So um, anyway, back to your original question of bulking. So when you're trying to gain muscle, then um, a myth is that you have to overdose on protein. You don't. Protein is most important when you're cutting, because when you're cutting, then your body's trying to, uh, you know, what you're trying to do is not uh, eat your own muscle, eat your own protein. So that's when you have to eat a lot of protein. When you're bulking, then you have an excess of carbs usually, so you don't need as much protein. Um, and then also when you're bulking, what you have to make sure to do is to not overtrain. So uh, this is kind of... Um, there's a wrinkle in this advice. So for people who are experienced athletes, then often you try to train as much as you can, given how much you fuel your body. So that's great. But for people who are first getting into gaining muscle, I think that's the wrong way to go about things. Because when you're gaining muscle, the first thing to watch out for is not hurting yourself. So if you try to train as much as fueling will let you, then oftentimes your ligaments and tendons will be the bottleneck, the thing that cannot handle what the muscle is doing, and then you get hurt. And it's a lot harder to come back from being hurt than it is to incrementally gain muscle. So when you're bulking, make sure to sustainably bulk. Don't overdose on protein just because you heard other people say that. Um, and make sure to get enough calories every day. And so it sounds like there, uh, you're, you might be you kind of alluded to with that paleo stuff that maybe an intermittent fast and then eat most of your calories later in the day might be a good idea. Uh, there's a few different ways to look at that. So um, so when I've worked with clients, then uh there's some people who, you know, there's people listening to the podcast. There's a sort of archetype I've seen, which is um, people between 30 and 50 years old, men between 30 and 50 years old, who are not as athletic as they were before and have an office job and are trying to figure out how long to keep an office job and might even be trying to figure out a way to work more at home um, or to work, you know, partially from home. So in that case, I'd say the most important thing is to figure out when you're working out during your work schedule. Um, and then also when you go to bed and when you wake up. So if you work out during the workday, then I'd say that's the most flexible because then you allow enough fuel um, to work out and then to refuel during lunch. Um, eat a big lunch, and then eat less as the day goes on. So there are some circadian rhythm reasons why eating a really huge dinner might not be as good as eating a really huge lunch. But um, that really depends on the person. Some people are very um, sensitive to this. So if you eat a big dinner uh, and you don't eat much during the day, then they could have worse sleep. Some people um, deal okay with that. But basically... Uh, the body responds well to seeing blue light during the day, um, eating a lot during the day, uh, you know, carbohydrate especially, uh, and seeing people during the day. So whether it's actual people, seeing pictures of people, um, the, the brain actually responds really well to seeing babies um, in terms of regulating your circadian rhythm. So I'd say uh, instead of periodizing your meals, uh, depending on when is exactly optimal according to studies, see what makes you feel the best and what works the best with your work schedule um, and then tweak it from there.
Okay. So we've talked about nutrition. Let's talk about supplements. Um, a lot of confusion out there. Um, can you tell us a bit about, about the supplement industry and why there's so much, like why there's so many supplements in the first place claiming to do different things um, and why some of these claims are just crazy and insane. You're like, that's not, that cannot be true. Can you tell us a bit about that? So the whole thing starts back in the early 90s. So there was a time when the supplement industry could have been highly regulated for better or for worse. Because you don't want supplements to be so regulated that you can't buy supplements, um, but you don't want supplements to be so little regulated that you have the current situation where companies can basically make whatever claim they want. So in the early 90s, there was a chance that supplements could have been extremely regulated. And then a couple congressmen um, who were basically um, in the pockets of the supplement industry decided that this should not happen and they should pass legislation to make sure it didn't happen. So uh, these congressmen, um, one of whom was Orrin Hatch, uh, so he was from Utah and and he was indirectly responsible for the well-being of some supplement companies that were centered in Utah. Um, So him and another uh, congressperson passed or started this legislation, DSHEA, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Um, and then there was a lot of controversy about this act while it was being debated in Congress. There was actually a video. Um, if you if you're in, on YouTube and you look up Mel Gibson uh, vitamin C, then you'll see this ad from like '93 or something that showed uh, police sirens blaring, and then they went to this house, and you know it's sort of this like guerrilla style video that's all shaky, and you go in there, and somebody has a bottle of something, and it looks like a drug bust. And it turns out it's Mel Gibson and Mel Gibson says, Hey, you know, I'm not, there's no drugs here or something like that. It's just vitamin C. Um, And then the ad closes with this message, you know, don't let them take away our vitamin C or something. So it's a straw man argument. You know, nobody was ever going to take away your vitamin C, just like, you know, nobody's going to take away your guns. This is just a scare tactic from supplement companies um, to get away from the main issue, which is we needed at least a little bit more regulation because what Deshay ended up doing is uh, two things. It made it so that the supplement manufacturer is the one who's responsible for supplement safety before a supplement goes on the market. And then the FDA is only quote unquote responsible after unsafe supplements have been found and there's been you know enough public outcry. So there's problems on both ends of that. The manufacturer never has enough money to do rigorous enough trials to show safety for a supplement. And then FDA never has enough money to do post-market surveillance of a supplement. So when you combine those things, it means that there's basically no holds barred, Wild West, anything goes, and there's not enough tracking to show that supplements that are unsafe are actually unsafe. And then to compound that, there's this warning, uh, the so-called quack Miranda warning. So the Miranda warning is when you get arrested, uh, you have a right not to say anything. So it's basically, you know, now that you know, go ahead and say whatever you want. And the quack Miranda warning is the thing that you find on every supplement bottle that um, this product is not intended to treat disease or diagnose or whatever, um, even though the supplement bottle can basically say that it treats cardiovascular disease or blood sugar or testosterone um, or anything. So there's a lot of imbalance there. We get false information from the supplement label and from marketing and from fancy looking bar graphs. And then we buy stuff. And then there's Amazon reviews that, you know, 
art sometimes influenced by people who get the product for free from the supplement manufacturer. And then we use things and that, and by that time it's too late. You know, if there's one study that shows a lack of effect, it gets drowned out by a bunch of other studies that showed that there was some effect from, you know, a, a study design that was not optimal. So there's just a lot of things wrong and it's basically why we exist at examine.com. Right. And with that lack of regulation, uh, I mean, it, it's possible for a supplement company to say X is in this supplement, but there's actually not that supplement in that supplement, correct? Yeah. So uh, we covered one of those in our research digest a few months ago, um, a type of bacteria, probiotic, uh, bifidobacteria, is one of the biggest types of probiotics, um, along with um, lacto species. So um, for the first time, a research group looked at uh, some of the available bifidobacteria-containing bottles, and they found that out of 17 that were tested, only one actually contained the strains on the bottle. The rest either didn't contain some of the strains or contained some extra strains. And that's not even talking about whether it met the label claims, like having 10 billion CFUs or having more or less. So it's a big problem, not just for probiotics, but for everything else. Uh, like there's a researcher, Peter Cohen, who um, who lives in Boston and does a lot of research uh, with Harvard Medical School and some other institutions looking at supplements and what's in the bottle and what isn't. So t- sometimes it's not that important. So like uh, for some random nutrient that doesn't have a lot of side effects at high dosages, it might not be important. But for some herb, if you take a lot of the, that herb over time, then you could run into trouble because um, anything that can have a positive effect oftentimes can have a negative effect. So uh, like when you look at some registries, uh, for example, um, liver side effects, oftentimes the culprits are like, you know, somebody took this random herb for six months and then their liver shut down and it just kind of came out of nowhere. And it's because the liver has to detox. You know, the reason why detox diets don't work is that the liver is a really robust organ. It doesn't need help. Um, actually our body, our kidneys and liver and everything in general doesn't really, really need help as long as you eat a normal healthy diet. But when you start introducing strange things into the body and you do it every day, that's where the liver runs into problems. And that's also where other organs can run into problems. So given that you don't have to provide safety information, you yourself have to do the research. So, you know, I never take a supplement every day if I can help it. I only take a supplement if it's been extremely well studied or if I'm experimenting with it to see if it makes me feel better. I don't take a, you know, a buckle list of supplements every day. Uh, I stopped that about 10 years ago, but before then I would take everything that well-known websites said worked. Um, and I would spend a lot of money every month. And then I just sort of had a realization one day, I was like, if it's not making me feel better and it's not extensively shown to make people healthier, then why am I wasting my money on it? So uh, people have to make sure that they're not throwing their money away and they're not setting themselves up to go to the ICU and, you know, get in trouble when they're in their 60s or something because their organs have been subject to weird herbs. Yeah. We actually had a guy on the podcast a while back ago. He was a major league prospect and he was taking some muscle, some supplement, and he actually experienced liver failure. Oh, okay. Um, and it just derailed baseball career. Uh, really, really sad. Um, so with the scene of supplements about, you know, if you don't want to waste your money on supplements, are there supplements that people take regularly that actually aren't doing anything for them? Yeah. So um, the two categories that 
usually don't do anything is uh, testosterone boosters and fat burners. So um, testosterone boosters, you know, you you personally know a lot about that. And, uh, and you know that ways to be healthy often boost testosterone without involving a supplement. But the, the long and short of it is that a testosterone booster can do one of two things to make it seem like it's working. So it can either um, boost libido, which you might think would also mean it's boosting testosterone, but it isn't necessarily. And the second thing is it can boost testosterone maybe for two or three or four weeks and then go back to baseline or even lower. But usually testosterone boosting supplements don't boost testosterone. And the intuitive way to think about this is that if there was a testosterone booster that did reliably boost testosterone over the long run, then why would the testosterone pharmaceuticals do well at all? Because, you know, you have to go to the doctor, you know, convince them basically to prescribe you testosterone. If your testosterone isn't extremely low, uh, go pick up the the medication instead of just ordering it on Amazon. So it's kind of the like the argument people say, you know, there's a cure for cancer. I'm sure of it. It's just pharmaceutical companies um, are blocking it so that they make a lot of money. There's a lot of things wrong with pharmaceutical companies, but that's not one of them. So uh, there is no magic testosterone boosting supplement. Uh, there are ones that could help things related to libido and stuff, but there isn't anything that super reliably works. With fat burners, um, it's basically that the body doesn't like burning fat. You know, fat is a useful way to dispose of extra energy. Um, it's it's a way to feed your body during times of famine, even if that never happens in industrialized societies. So to burn fat, you have to work hard at it. Um, there are ways to somewhat support it sometimes, like green tea and some people, especially overweight and obese people, could support it in a very minor extent. But 99% of fat burning supplements don't work. Um, and oftentimes those are based on animal studies or flawed human studies. And then even some of the major supplements that people take, multivitamins, probiotics, fish oil, um, are are often not working for them, even if they work for other people. So fish oil for some people could help. You know, if you're older, if you've had a heart attack, um, if you have some um, markers of intermediate um, cardiovascular risk, then it could help. For a healthy person, fish oil often does not help. Uh, for somebody with major depressive disorder, it could help. For somebody who's looking to just make gains at the gym and read some random study, it won't help. A multivitamin for somebody who eats a really crappy diet could help because they're not getting a lot of nutrients anyways. For somebody who's eating a pretty good diet, it often won't help. And uh, for those high-dose multivitamins that come in either powder or a lot of pills that you have to take every day, um, I'd say skip those because researchers find out new things basically every year about how high levels of certain nutrients could be bad. Like folic acid was put enriched back into the diet so that pregnant women wouldn't give birth to babies with neural tube defects, which is great. But folic acid in high levels is increasingly linked to cancer. So, you know, just because it's a water soluble vitamin doesn't mean that it couldn't have a negative effect. Uh, and then those uh, vitamins often don't have optimal levels of uh, minerals. So I'd say minerals are more important than vitamins often in terms of things people are deficient in. Uh, and if you take uh, a multivitamin that has 50% of magnesium, but it's in the magnesium oxide form, then that's not going to be absorbed really well. It's absorbed at around 10%, whereas magnesium chelates are much, much higher than that. 
So rather than taking a multivitamin, if you're eating a decent diet, uh, log your diet for a few days, let's say two weekdays and one weekend day for two or three weeks. See what nutrients you're low in and then supplement with those or look at foods that have those and eat those. Don't just take a multivitamin because it seems like a good idea. Are there supplements that work then um, that, that studies have shown over and over again, like they actually have a benefit without much downside? Yeah, so there's some things that uh, have no detriment. So any benefit is going to be good. So nitrates. So th this doesn't mean nitrate um, producing supplements like arginine and stuff like that. Uh, this means dietary nitrates, or if you're if you need to get it through a supplement, it would be like a, a beet powder or something. But nitrates don't have detriment, um, and that's because nitrates basically increase nitric oxide synthesis in our body, and and that's controlled enough that you can't overdose on beets and kale and stuff. So, um, you know, people used to think that you when you ate leafy greens, then it's uh, healthy because of fiber. Or it's healthy because of some phytochemicals, because it's green, or it's healthy because it decreases your calorie intake. Those might all be true, but possibly one of the biggest parts of the reason leafy greens are good is because they increase nitrate levels um, and nitric oxide levels in our body, and they do so uh, with a long enough half-life that it's healthy. So when you take a supplement, it might only increase uh, nitric oxide for an hour or something. But if you eat leafy greens twice during the day, then that could increase nitric oxide levels for a few hours during the day. And when you accumulate that over the course of the lifetime, that means that you might get that you know, vasodilation in your blood vessels for long enough that that provides you some heart benefit. Um, and then it just so happens that nitrates can be helpful for exercise performance. Um, and that's for both short-term and for endurance activity. So nitrates are kind of a no-brainer. Um, a second pretty much no-brainer is creatine, and that's because creatine has the most research out of any supplement um, that's related to performance, and creatine has an increasing amount of research for uh, cognitive enhancement. Uh, and then really, there's not that many others. Um, protein is a supplement that for certain people, I'd say is a no-brainer. So if you're an older person, if you're at risk for falls, um, take protein because when you fall and you break your hip, uh, that's a leading reason why older people um, get sick or die. And one way to prevent the complications of that is getting a ton of protein. Um, but I'd say that those supplements are some of the only no-brainers. Everything else, there's some degree of, you know, you have to think about it first. So you, you've done a lot of research in vitamin D. Um, and you hear in the media like vitamin D, vitamin D, it, it's like the cure-all for everything, depression, um, metabolic diseases, et cetera. Uh, is that one of those sort of things you have to put a little more thought into? Yeah, it is. Um, and the only reason is this. So in the general populace, I'd say, so this is in people who listen to the podcast. This is the general populace who thinks a few times a year about their health, but mostly reads articles on you know CNN or Huffington Post um, about some new supplement or diet. So it's not that those studies are bad and it's not that, uh, you know, vitamin D doesn't help X, Y, Z condition. It's that, uh, you have to think about the nutrients that are missing from your life and from your diet. And vitamin D is not a dietary nutrient. You know, it's not that people, you know, 200 years ago and 10,000 years ago made sure to get cod liver so that they could get enough vitamin D. Um, 
and they didn't eat fortified or enriched foods to get vitamin D. What they did is they were outside. So uh, some people listening to the podcast will live at a latitude where they get enough vitamin D outside. Um, and it's actually not that hard if basically you're white, um, especially if you're white enough to get a tan as soon as you spend half an hour in the sun. Uh, and then if you take vacations regularly in warm weather climates, you can also get enough vitamin D. Or if you take a multivitamin, you can often get enough vitamin D. But then there's two other groups of people. So when I first got my vitamin D tested, um, I had taken a multivitamin almost every day for two or three years. And my vitamin D ended up at around uh, 18 or 19, which is fairly low for somebody who's taken a multivitamin. And increasingly what people are seeing is that there's not an extremely strong correlation between how much vitamin D you take in and uh, what your levels are. It is a strong but not extremely strong correlation, which means you can be like me and take it and still not have high levels. So I took more and I ended up normalizing my vitamin D. But when you get vitamin D through sun, I'd say the correlation is quite a bit higher um, of your sun exposure and what your vitamin D levels end up being. But let's say that because of where you live, you cannot get enough vitamin D and you're not good at regularly taking a supplement. Then you do have to make sure to get tested for vitamin D um, and your primary care provider should pay for it in most every case. If they don't pay for it, then order the test yourself and get tested. And if you end up in your teens, that's bad. And make sure to take a vitamin D supplement of at least, let's say, a 1,000 IUs. Um, if you're somewhere in your 20s, then you might or might not need to supplement. So people with darker skin sometimes think you have to, they have to supplement because um, the vitamin D council said you have to be above 30. So there's some wrinkles in that story. So people who, uh, let's say, uh, there is a study in African-American um, adolescent uh, girls that showed that most of the time when uh, those girls are lower in vitamin D, it doesn't actually do anything bad. Um, even though their intake might be low and their vitamin D levels might be low in their serum and their blood, uh, they don't have lower bone mineral density or risk of fracture. So it varies a lot by genetics and genetics doesn't only depend on skin color. Uh, genetics could be similar between a lily white person and a darker person like myself it's just hard to know. So that's why you have to get tested. You can't rely on your skin color. You can't rely on how much vitamin D you're taking. You absolutely have to get tested. But once you do get tested, if you're in your teens and you have some health issues, then take vitamin D every day for two or three months. And there's a decent chance that you could show some actual benefit in terms of your cognition, how you feel, depression, uh, your muscle gain or whatever, because uh, vitamin D is not a nutrient like the other nutrients. It's a it's a wide-reaching pre-hormone. Gotcha. <clears throat> so, uh, Kamal, lately in the past few years, uh, nootropics have become hot. I mean, there's just every, it seems like every week there's some nootropic company coming out. So for those of you who aren't familiar, nootropics are supplements that claim to be able to increase cognition, uh, help you focus better, um, have better memory. It's basically like the limitless. Is that what that movie was called? Right with the yeah the pill you take and you just become like superhuman. Um, is is there any credence to nootropics that, that these nootropics companies are making, or is it all just a bunch of flimflam? Uh, so first, we should take a step back and look at what nootropics are. So nootropics do have a, a evidence theoretical basis. Um, some types were and are used as medications in Europe. Um, 
there are some that have been studied more than others. Originally, there was a definition. So uh, nootropics had to be uh, something that had certain effects on the brain, basically, in summary. But it was always a loose definition, and it's only gotten looser over time. The current definition is not that uh, dissimilar to does something in the brain, often with cognition. So um, I'd say the current definition is basically something that does something in the brain, often with cognition, doesn't have many side effects, is not shown to be toxic in high amounts. Uh, so in that definition, a ton of things apply to nootropics, not just the um, historically defined ones like the uh, paracetam and other uh, similarly named nootropics. So if we look at all the cognitive enhancers in general, then it's virtually impossible to have a go-to nootropic. So your go-to muscle gain supplement might be creatine. Your go-to uh, broad-reaching supplement for mood and other stuff might be vitamin D. Your go-to for like weird conditions might be vitamin C. Um, quick, quick reason why is that, uh, like I said before, um, we have to consume our vitamin C. Other animals can make theirs. When an animal that makes vitamin C uh, is subject to a lot of physiological stress, they make a ton of vitamin C, like many, many grams. When humans are subject to a lot of stress, we eat less or we eat a lot of junk food and we don't get a lot of vitamin C. So counterproductive. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of studies on this, but most likely when we're under a lot of stress, we should get more vitamin C because when you're not under a lot of stress and you take in a lot of vitamin C, then you get diarrhea. But when you're under a lot of stress and you're taking a lot of vitamin C, you don't get diarrhea. And it's because we use that vitamin C instead of having it mess with our guts and getting pooped out or peed out rather. So, um, so vitamin C is, uh, along with vitamin D and creatine, a uh, go-to supplement. There is no go-to nootropic. Even the most well-studied cognition enhancers work in far less than half of people. And oftentimes, like you said before, the studies that are done are on people who have some cognitive deficits, uh, are ill in some manner, are older. Um, I, I used to work with this research center on aging, and almost every study... Um, done on a supplement is done in older people when they show good results. The only sort of supplement that shows uh, broadly good results in cognition um, amongst younger and older people is blueberry. Um, and that's not really classified as a supplement, even though you can take blueberry powder. So I don't think nootropics are bunk. You know, uh, back in the day when I would experiment more, I would cap my own nootropics, you know, get a capping machine, buy the bulk powder, make my own. Uh, because I'm crazy, I would even placebo control myself. Uh, I would take a batch, uh, take another patch and make them sugar powder and capsules or maltodextrin powder. Um, and then see after two or three weeks what the effect was and then unmask, unblind myself. Uh, most non-crazy people won't do that, but that's really the only way to know if a hyped nootropic is doing anything because uh, you can take a supplement and I've had a placebo effect myself when I took a generic medication and, and only later found out that that generic medication is actually not as helpful as the normal medication. So in 99% of cases, the generic does as well as the normal medication, but there can be very slight differences in the generic medication like um, the configuration of the molecules in the generic 
could make either greater side effects or less, less efficacy than medication. Only later did I find that I was probably overthinking things and, and thought that the medication provides some benefit because the longer I took it, there wasn't any benefit anymore. So I'd say uh, nootropics are the last thing you should look at. You know, look at diet, look at sleep, look at stress first, and then look at nootropics. Okay. Great advice. Well, Kamal, we, we really dug deep in this podcast, but there's so much more we could talk about. Um, where can people learn more about your work? So um, go to examine.com, send us a message. I read every message. If you want to um, talk to me or look at stuff I personally post, I'm at facebook.com slash Miranda July. Uh, long and stupid story why that's my Facebook address. But, um, you know, I, I love talking to people interested in nutrition and health and lifestyle. Uh, and, you know, send us random studies. We love it. Uh, we like looking at, at new things. We like looking at even case studies. Um, we're just a collection of people like you guys that like reading stuff. So, um, you know, talk to us and we'll talk back. Awesome. Well, Kamal Patel, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yep. And have a good day. My guest today was Kamal Patel. He's the head researcher at examine.com. If you want to find out about any sort of supplement that you have a question about, whether it's effective or not, head over to examine.com, search for it, and you're going to get a a very detailed analysis in plain language that'll tell you whether it works or not, um, all independently verified. Uh, They also have a lot of other great content just about nutrition and health in general. So check that out as well, examine.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash examine, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you could do me a favor, uh, if you have an extra minute, please go to surveypod.net to take a short survey about today's episode. It would help the show out a lot, and I appreciate it. Again, surveypod.net for a quick survey to help the show. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.